Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. My name's Kate Goodwin and I'm the Head of Architecture. And it's my great delight to introduce this evening's panel. I think there's probably everyone's waiting um, with great expectation. It is obviously an issue that is hot on everybody's minds. It was on the 27th of June that the Royal Academy hosted an event as part of the London Festival of Architecture, and it was called You Ask the Questions. And we thought we'd be discussing, it was about you know, focusing on architecture in London, and we thought we'd be discussing infrastructure, housing, public spaces, all of those things that, that have been the, such topics of discussion. Um, but obviously the referendum results a few days before meant that that discussion was kind of, we, we couldn't really go beyond this sort of discussion of Brexit and what it meant. There was a lot of discussion, you know, I, th- I guess a real <coughs> sense of uncertainty about what it meant. Speculation at the time. Sarah Sand, the editor of The Evening Standard, made a couple of quite interesting points, I think, really about how London needed to think about its relationship to the rest of the country and what role culture might play in that. We went to various issues of housing as well and, you know, what, what would this mean for the property market? And so it seems very apt that we wanted to return to this subject and actually make it the subject of a debate itself. Particularly at the Royal Academy here, we think of architecture as being very much part of society, part of a city, um, and... Um, So it's something we wanted to give due attention to. And it seems, again, that the timing of this event is very apt. With the High Court ruling only a few days ago and this whole discussion refuelled. So I'm delighted to welcome the panel and to hand over to Ben Rogers, who is, I think, there couldn't be a better person chairing this evening's discussion. He is director of the Centre for London, (coughs) who is the capital's think tank um, around all issues that cover some policy, um, urban planning society and people. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Ben um, to take the discussion forward. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming. I'm also delighted to be chairing this discussion. Uh, it's been a momentous year in London. It's extraordinary to think that just a year ago, Zach and Sadiq were beginning their campaign. Uh, here we are a year later, um, and not only a, a Labour mayor in London, pretty much the only successful Labour politician in the country, you might say. Um, but uh, uh, his, his election back in May was followed only a few weeks later by the uh, EU referendum where London bucked the trend by voting uh, 60-40 to remain. I think even from this close distance, we can look back and see those two events, Sadiq's election and, and, and the referendum result in London as being very much of a piece that London should um, elect a Muslim mayor, that London should vote to stay in the EU, I think, uh, shows a city which is very much at ease with its status as a sort of global <coughs> hub, um, an, op- an op- open city, um, a city which just has, uh, has developed over the last 15 or 20 years, I think, quite a sort of distinct identity and outlook, which does set it apart from much of the rest of the, of the UK. They're not, of course, Scotland, but certainly from much of the rest of, much of, the rest of England, being a global city, of course, poses huge challenges as well as opportunities for London. I mean, we've benefited in lots of ways, but it does mean that we're growing very fast. There's huge housing challenges and so on. Uh, some people have suggested that um, Brexit will be good because it will uh, actually take some of those pressures uh, off London. Uh, but for many others, it's a sort of almost, a, almost a sort of visceral assault on, on London's uh, status as a, as a global capital. So we're here today to discuss what 
Brexit will mean for London. I think with a particular eye for uh, what will mean for London's culture, for its creative industries, um, and for, it, for its built environment. And uh, as Kate said, we've got a great collection of panellists. I just introduced them very quickly. I then give them all an opportunity to, uh, to make an opening <coughs> pitch, if you like. We'll then um, have a, a short discussion amongst ourselves. And there'll be uh, lots of opportunity for all of you to contribute um, comments and questions uh, before we wind up at 8 o'clock. Um, I do encourage you to, to tweet, those of you that are Twitterers, um, or tweeters even, uh, beyond, beyond Brexit. Um, and, uh, and I gather this, all this will be recorded and available on the website. So unless I've missed anything, I'll just introduce the panellists. So uh, Paul Finch, who was previously editor of um, Architectural Journal and Architecture Review, uh, and then chair of CABE and is now programme director of World Architecture Festival and a columnist for Architects Journal. Um, uh, Carol Patterson, who is an uh, uh, American-British architect and director of OMA here in London, I think set up the OMA office. Uh, Stella Creasy is not yet here, but we're hoping um, that she will arrive. I'm sure she will, but she's a very, very busy woman. Uh, Yvonne Blaswick, who uh, was chief curator at Tate Modern and now, of course, is director of the Whitechapel. And finally, finally Tom uh, Copley, who is a member of the London Assembly, Deputy Chair for the Housing Committee in the Assembly, and a member of the Planning and Transport <coughs> Committee. So, um, Paul, I was very interested, and uh, I suppose a tiny bit surprised, to, to learn, as we were discussing, that you were uh, a lever, um, because there aren't many architects uh, out there, um, or, or, or perhaps the, part of, I mean, you are part of the London Metropolitan Elite, after all. Um, why, why did you vote to leave, and, and, and what are the opportunities for London? Well, um, I take it that I'm the sort of token leper uh, on the council, uh, this evening. Actually, not, well, um, no, we know we might do. Before you... Should we just put up a show of hands? <laughs> we just put up a show of hands. Who, who voted to leave? Who, who allied themselves with Paul? Come on. He's brave enough to put up his hand. One, two, perhaps five. Okay. Uh, who voted to stay? Yeah, London Metropolitan Elite. Okay, Paul, go ahead. Why did you vote to leave? Well... I hesitate to say much in front of such an unrepresentative <laughs> London audience since 40% of us actually voted to leave. But let me say first that I voted to stay in 1975 and I thought it was an internationalist thing to do. And I voted to leave this year and I still think, I still feel that I'm an internationalist. I think the world is more important uh, than Europe and it's certainly more important uh, than the EU. And for a variety of reasons, which we might go into later, immigration being a very minor one, because I do believe in the free movement of labour, not necessarily people, but the whole series of constitutional things about the EU and financial things, which I think are potentially uh, very dangerous uh, for Europe and absolutely dreadful for this country. So um, I think the, the role for London, and indeed, actually, the, the centre for London in a way, is to face up to an extraordinary topsy-turvy political situation. No one would have predicted this in the same way that most people didn't predict that the Conservatives would get an overall majority at the general election, which is the only reason we got a referendum, apart from the fact there was a massive parliamentary majority, which people seem to forget now, that there should be a referendum, massively voted through in the House of Commons, and uh, the political parties have finally delivered... Uh, the off-delayed promise to uh, let the people speak. So the opportunities for London... Well, I suppose if it's an opportunity, the first thing is to um, carry on the fight to have business as usual. 
might be easier said than done. Some <coughs> industries are up in activities and some are down at the moment. Um, but actually even undertaking uh, that struggle may in fact prove an opportunity because it will make us focus uh, on our own competitive position as a city, uh, which we, we will very much be uh, inside what is still uh, the great continent of Europe. I think the likelihood is that because of the so-called end of austerity that we'll get continuing investment in infrastructure. So I would imagine Crossrail 2 will come along. HS2, I think, is a near certainty now because this government and many ministers in it have backed it. So I think that's probably going to be good for London. Whether it's good for all the northern cities remains to be seen. London may still, the great when, may still be... To, may still be a succubus on the rest of the country rather than us <laughs> exporting our best and brightest uh, to help populate the great northern house, powerhouse, the Midlands engine, etc., etc. It may be an opportunity finally to wake up to our status uh, as a European city with the worst uh, housing. I hesitate to call it crisis since it's been ongoing for, for 25 years, but perhaps this will prompt. Uh, the drive to uh, get decent housing uh, for all our people uh, in a world where London's position can't be quite guaranteed in the same way as it perhaps was uh, before uh, the Brexit uh, vote. As far as architecture is concerned, I don't think it makes much difference. The number of architects who've won work under EU procurement rules in uh, the EU itself is pretty low. And in fact, all the major jobs that, uh, you know, the, the the big and not-so-big architects of one have tended to be won in international competition, and I really don't see that uh, changing because clients who want the best architects don't, by and large, don't want to be limited by some uh, imagined continental boundary of any description, so I expect that uh, to remain uh, the same. Can we remain a, a great world city? Well, I think the answer to that is yes, because we've been a great world city for centuries, and actually that's partly our trading history, it's part the fact that, that we were part of a gigantic commercial empire, and it's partly the fact that the City of London is arguably the greatest financial centre in the world, but it's certainly in the top three, um, and for reasons that you all know about. I think that's rather unlikely to change, and people say, oh yeah, but everybody's going to go to Frankfurt. Well, I've got news for you. The EU and the cities inside it have been chipping away at the City of London for decades now. So the competition from them won't be anything different to what we've been experiencing from inside the EU. And it will be up to uh, our creative financial types, of which we have many, uh, to uh, keep their own particular flag flying. And they better because, as you know... London's contribution to the tax state of the UK is highly disproportionate and the contribution of the City of London is even more disproportionate, so those things are going to be quite important. Will we still be student heaven? I don't know, because it is possible that combination of national policies, maybe just a feeling that London has lost its mojo and it's not as international as it used to be, will result in fewer students coming here. On the other hand, since by and large they come here for sex, drugs, rock and roll, I'm assuming that the, the, the sort of semi-decadence which we've been enjoying for the last 30 years uh, will probably continue in our post-empire phase, and that's really what those students uh, love, despite the high house prices and despite the outrageous, uh, the outrageous costs of doing it. So... 
on the whole, I think it's all to play for rather than uh, holding out some kind of golden opportunities at the end of a sort of post-Brexit rainbow. I think we're going to have to work extremely hard, but London's a resilient city and we've done it before, so um, I'm not crying into my very English beer. <laughs> Can I just say that Crossrail is part funded by the EU? <laughs> well, we're net, we're net contributors. The EU has been bribing us with our own money, ladies and gentlemen. So let's just remember, it's not EU money, it's our money. We're a net contributor. Carol, from the point of view of, of an architect, what, what, what is the, the big challenge and are there any opportunities? Uh, I think on twofold. And first I have to, you'll hear from my accent, um, that I'm completely and utterly obsessed about what's happening tomorrow. <laughs> so, <laughs> I just, yeah, 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 so um, and I, I read it, some uh, pundit called it a Brexistential dread. <laughs> and that we might be doing our own vote to leave. We're headquartered in Holland. We have uh, offices on three other continents. We only have about 300 people, but of those 300, we represent 47 different countries in our staff. We're working in 45 different countries. Brexit actually has no impact on our, on our work, um, and I think that's partly, that's partly because we're so spread out around the world. Um, and even though we've been based here in the UK, we've had an office here in the UK for 10 years, you know, I look at my peers, my, my architect peers who have offices here, and they've certainly... It's a boom and bust. It's a boom and bust profession. We have booms, we have busts. It's always up and down. I've, I've started in the industry when they're in a recession. It happens. Um, so for our office, it, we had one, one office building when the city was booming. We had one residential when things were booming. But my, my kind of compatriots and peers, uh, I think a lot of projects were put on hold the day after the referendum. Uh, one office I know had six big projects get put on hold. Um, however, those are starting to, start, starting to go again. I think some of the some of the longer looking developers are being more cautious. Others are seeing an opportunity. They, you know, they expect the cost of construction to go down. So now maybe it's a moment to actually build that thing that you haven't been able to afford to build before. It, you know, it's, it's basically it's a crapshoot. I mean, it's anyone's guess. Um, for us, I think if, on a, a twofold. One, I think where Brexit does impact things is the exchange rate. Um, and that's probably threefold. There's the cost of building materials. Uh, concrete and steel, yes, in the UK, you can get your frame built, but everything else comes from somewhere else. A little bit from China, a little bit from America, most of it comes from Europe. So is that exchange rate and how, you know, is it, how much more expensive is it going to be to build something by bringing in those goods and what's the deal going to be? Big question. Um, for us, uh, most of our staff is still based in Holland and we're getting paid in pounds. Is it worth actually pitching for projects here when we might, might not the fees not might be able to cover uh, our, our employees? And third, in, in talking to industry, is a lot of the construction workers and architects and staff who come from Europe and elsewhere, they're not making as much money. So you're not going home again with, you know, it costs a lot to live here. You're making uh, money in a currency that actually isn't is worth as much money at home, so maybe it's actually time to pack up and go home. So for me, that's the bigger... The bigger and presumably your office is extraordinarily impact. cosmopolitan. Yes, exactly. So if you were to... If you were to down the, 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 pull up the drawbridge to yeah. uh, high, high-skilled EU workers. That exactly. would have a huge impact on your office. Massive, massive. And so I think, I think that's where it can, So for me, it goes back to Paul's word, the internationalism. Like I'm an, obviously an internationalist. I, I you know, everywhere. Um, 
but you know, London is changing. It's changing already before the referendum. You look at uh, the cranes everywhere, and, and how you know how are these new developments going to impact the feel of the place? Um, we have a new mayor that's a, that changes things tremendously, regardless of the vote. I think um, a new policy, um, but just that perception of of London being the most international place on the planet. And you said not you, but not most of not the audience have. The perception is, if it's the same as if Trump wins America, it's like build the wall where we want to go insular, and that, that for me is is is, is it kind of the imperceptible change. So I'll leave you to get, catch your breath. <laughs> um, what we've discovered so far is that we have a slightly unrepresentative audience. I think five members voted to leave, and the rest voted to stay. Not many. <laughs> Six if you count Paul. So there we go. Um, Yvonne, do you want to talk, to talk about particularly about the sort of cultural? Yeah, I was, what it will mean. I was asked to look at the impact for the arts, and I've looked at quite a few reports. There are lots of surveys done of my peers across all the cultural fields, and there are four main areas of real concern, I would say. First of all, in research. Uh, now, obviously, there's a lot of uh, research funding that comes from the EU for academics, artists, art schools, universities, independent galleries, museums, and so forth. So, with a loss of access to that research, where where is that money going to come from? Uh, for curators and critics from the EU, it will become more difficult to come into the UK if border controls are going to be intensified, as looks likely. Um, and that will impact on British artists, practitioners. There'll be less ability to come and research what they're doing. And for us to undertake research in the EU by visiting in the art world's terms, biennales like Venice, Berlin, or the manifestos, in film, things like Berlin and Cannes festivals, to visit museums, specialist archives, take part in conferences, professional meetings, and so on, <coughs> will become more difficult as visa requirements go the other way, and the cost of travel will increase because sterling is still in free fall. Number two, skills. At the moment, in art schools, 25% of the student body throughout London's college and university art departments comes from the EU. Um, geographic proximity and ease of movement bring students and faculty from across the EU who also share an academic and research culture which is unified by the Bologna Accord. If government and border agencies continue to insist on counting students within immigration figures and their desire to limit that to whatever number they come up with and they enforce the sorts of visa requirements currently in place for non-EU students, this will have a serious impact on the quality of art departments and architecture across all the cultural uh, educational sectors their cosmopolitanism their creativity, and most importantly, their financial future. In the aftermath of Brexit, student enrolment from the EU is already declining. Skills within uh, organisations, the directors of the British Museum, the National Gallery, and until a month ago, the V&A, are all non-UK EU nationals hired through a competitive and merit-based process. 25% of my colleagues come from the EU. A hard Brexit will deplete the expertise and creativity of all our institutions. Number three, circulation and exchange. London has been the gateway to Europe and vice versa, working 
collaboratively means pooling resources and ideas to aid the circulation and dissemination of British and international art and ideas. Arts organisations like the Wyatt Chapel and the Royal Academy, without collections, I mean, they do have a small one, but it's essentially, we're a temporary staging post, or organisations, theatres, music halls, concert halls and so on, who don't have resident companies, we all operate on a touring or commissioning model. We offer temporary platforms for exhibitions, concerts, plays, performances, lectures, recitals, and so on. The logistics of negotiating import and export protocols for hundreds of works of art, the logistics of negotiating and paying for visas for artists, authors, musicians, for every member of an orchestra or a dance or theatre company will prove prohibitive. Much has been said about being more open to the rest of the world. Yet, in 2010, we at the Whitechapel Gallery were able to mount a major exhibition of photography from India, Pakistan and Bangladesh because we made the show in partnership with other European museums. We pooled our resources. There is also danger that as sterling continues to lose value, the cost of acquiring international works for our great national collections will also become prohibitive, making them increasingly parochial. (coughs) The sterling rate already has increased our shipping costs. We borrow works from all over the world, and already in this financial year, our costs have gone up 20%. Finally, the arts economy. Designation as European capitals of culture transformed the economies and cultures of Glasgow and Liverpool. What will replace that? Among the most generous philanthropists in the London art world today are patrons from the EU. There is now a real issue with morale. One French patron said to me, we have supported Tate, Whitechapel, Serpentine, the RA for over a decade. Is this how we are thanked? Many of these major givers are also associated with financial industries that may relocate. But I agree with Paul. Frankfurt ain't going to cut the mustard. <laughs> uh, Freeze and Freeze Masters, for example, in the art world, generate more income for London than any other international trade fair. Galleries, artists and collectors come from across the EU and generate millions of pounds of sales and associated spending in hotels, restaurants, taxis and so on. Their visitors are all our visitors. Numbers across London organisations surge during what we call Freeze Week. And that's, then you can do that across all the different kind of arts festivals, from film to dance to architecture. Raising visa requirements, raising barriers to the movements of works of art and increased tariffs will impact on its viability and that of galleries such as Hauser & Worth, Boot Margus, the Deus Ropak, Almin Reich, David Zwerner, All of these galleries have recently opened branches in London, also generating a substantial economy. Overall, our fear is that creativity, innovation, cosmopolitanism, and the concomitant investments they bring and the economies they generate will all suffer. Tom, at least you're going to have something good to say about Brexit. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's going to be fantastic. House prices are going to tumble. 
Well, uh, <laughs> I, I, all I say is Brexit is a disaster for uh, London. It doesn't mean we're going to stop being a great world city. It just means it's going to be a lot harder and we'll have to put a lot more effort into maintaining our status. And um, I think possibly the only, the, the only good political event that happened this year, as far as I was concerned, was Sadiq Khan getting elected mayor. And that has, I think, sent a positive message about what London's about, because we've elected a uh, Muslim son of immigrants. You might have heard his dad was a bus driver. Did you mention that? <laughs> yes. Grew up in a council flat. Um, you also mentioned that quite a bit. Um, and I think that does send a very positive message. And his London is Open campaign, I think, has, has, um, uh, has, it has come, arrived um, at exactly the right time, really. And we, we, it really needs to be more than just a set of posters and some mugs with a logo on it. And I know it is more than that. But, I mean, we, we really need to work hard uh, to maintain our status. Now, on uh, housing, the good news is, if you're an international investor, London property just got a lot cheaper. <laughs> Because, uh, the, because of the weak pound, as, as we've already heard. Um, now, the interesting thing that Sadiq Khan is, is doing, that the, the London Assembly has been calling for uh, for a long time, and fell on deaf ears under Boris Johnson, was to, look, was to do, commission some sort of research into how overseas investment impacts on London's property market. Uh, because there's actually, there's actually very little out there uh, about the impact that it has. And we hear lots of talk about, you know, um, luxury skyscrapers, gold bricks in the sky, no one living there, lights off at night, that kind of thing. And anecdotally, that's true. But we also need to find out in much more detail what the picture is. And I think, crucially, how that money could be better channeled to deliver the homes that actually work for people who want to live and work here uh, and aren't just buying a property as an investment. Can we channel some of that funding uh, more intelligently? And one thing the mayor could do is set up some sort of wealth fund to attract both international uh, investments and, uh, and domestic property speculation as well. You could sell sort of housing bonds that will pay you uh, a much higher rate than you'd get uh, putting your money in a savings account. Um, and you'd be contributing as well, uh, contributing to uh, housing in London. Now, you get the, when you, whenever I talk to experts about what Brexit means for housing in London... You talk to one person and you talk to another person, you get a completely different uh, response in terms of house prices and things like that. There's already a bit of a crash in house prices at the very top of the market, the real luxury end. And it's anticipated there's going to be a 5% drop in house prices in London uh, next year. Um, but, then the, but then you also speak to experts who say, well, the Chinese interest in, uh, China's interest in investing in London property is only just at the very early stages. There's plenty more money uh, and demand where that comes from, uh, and that could have the effect, the, the opposite effect of pushing up house prices. So we really have a, it's, it's a very unclear and, uh, picture at the moment, and of course the fact that we haven't actually left the European Union yet either. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm still at the bargaining stage of grief, and I'm not sure that we ever, <laughs> I'm not sure that we ever will. Uh, we, could, we could be sitting in limbo for many, many years. So I guess what I'm saying is it really is too early to say. There are things that the mayor uh, is going to be putting in place. Uh, obviously, we've got a new mayor, new policies. But it's, it's a very, very mixed picture at the moment. Excellent. Stella, lastly to you. I think we all know who Stella Creasy is, uh, uh, MP and um, campaigner. And, and London MP. And London MP, Walthamstow yeah. MP. What has it been like for your constituents? And, and particularly, I mean, has, has London become a more sort of divided place since, since the vote? Well, I, I just want to reassure you all 
because from half past three until now, Parliament has been debating all of these issues, and I can confidently tell you that Brexit means Brexit. <laughs> so that's, that's all we all needed to know, isn't it? It has genuinely been... I'm a little bit older than Tom, and I've, I've been involved in politics now for over 25 years. I've never seen anything like that. Yes, honestly, I wear a lot of makeup. <laughs> it is genuinely, it is genuinely bizarre. Um, I gen- I, for all I joke about the fact that we keep having these kind of debates where the government just keeps saying Brexit means Brexit means Brexit means Brexit, and you're like, okay, just say breakfast if you want to say breakfast. Um, I promise you, actually, the vast majority of us are not obsessed about whether this now means that you can have a blue passport, uh, whether now it means that you have to listen to God Save the Queen at the end of the evening when you watch uh, TV, or even that your Marmite can be substituted with Vegemite. There are genuinely big debates, and those big debates are very divisive, I have to be honest about it. Um, The division that you are feeling in your communities, we are feeling in Parliament too. And actually, as a London MP, it feels incredibly difficult because we are the only region that actually voted to remain. Um, And yet... Even within my community, 70% of people in Walthamstow voted to remain, which means that 30% of people voted to leave. I knew that we weren't going to win the European referendum when I watched a Somali woman racially abusing a Hungarian woman in my town centre shouting, my daughter can't get a job, go home to where you came from to her. And both of them were in tears. And for me, that and talking to both of them, trying to get both of them to to talk to each other was symptomatic of a bigger problem that we have in British society right now is that actually, just as the world feels an incredibly uncertain place, you know, three words to strike horror into your heart, President Donald Trump. (laughs) Four words to fake you feel completely miserable, Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson. (laughs) Actually, you need us as political leaders, both at a local, regional and national level, to offer not just sympathy or even a sense that you were right and it's all some terrible experiment, but actually (laughs) some very practical, some very real opportunities for what could happen next. Since that vote, I have been deluged with queries at a local level from the granny in my community who rang me, sobbing down the phone at me because she'd originally been born in Italy, was absolutely convinced that she was going to be sent home, to the woman who had lost her job in the last recession, had set up an import-export business and now her suppliers were telling her that her prices were going up 10% to the rise in hate crime that we have seen. And all of this sits on top of underlying enduring inequalities that we have in our capital city. So we should not forget that a third of Londoners live in poverty and it's the working poor. That's why what Tom is doing on housing is so incredibly important. You know, we had 30,000 evictions in London last year, double the number in any other part of this country. So you add into that mix an area of real tension and real prosperity that sits side by side, something which is so uncertain. Because the honest truth is I can't say to that granny, look, don't worry about this. I can't say to the woman whose business is challenging, look, don't worry about this, it will all be fine. Because we actually in Parliament can't begin to unpick what Brexit might mean. And I think there's a real, um, real challenge and responsibility for all of us who voted to remain, and I was the only Remain MP in my patch, so I was fighting very hard for it, to say, actually, we've now got to make this work. Because, because that granny, because that business, because these people who are facing difficulties already need us to do what we came into politics for, which is not just to change governments, but to change lives. And to do that in this context means having a plan. So that is why you will see us, and I got up again today and tried to ask David Davis about it, and even felt sorry for Liam Fox at that point. 
that what, what the plan is and how, what our red lines are. Now, within that, there are a range of things that can happen. Now, people talk about hard and soft Brexit. I think we haven't even begun to unpick the various opportunities and challenges that we need to get right, so not just in terms of access to the single market, but also what this means for freedom of movement. I'm acutely conscious that London has one in ten of its citizens as EU citizens, and that actually the tensions between minority communities have increased as well since the summer, and that isn't going away. I say this as somebody who's been doing a lot of work about refugees and a lot of work about how we get the children out of the Calais refugee camps. It was very striking to me that one of the most powerful arguments coming to me from my community about why people were voting to leave was a sense of grievance about visas and a sense of grievance about people not from the EU, not getting as good a deal as people from the EU when they wanted to come to London. We are a very divided capital city, even if we think we are a community that on the whole wants to stay in Europe, and we have to acknowledge that and deal with that as much as we have to have a plan for what the practicalities of Brexit look like. Now, that's why a lot of us are going, you know, when you ask us about Article 50, well, it's a blank piece of paper right now, so none of us know what that plan is. But for me, one of the challenges about Brexit is a recognition that actually we didn't have a relationship with the British public to bring them with us to what we've had in London about why being international, why being able to have people come here brings jobs, brings opportunities, brings creativity. And so for that deal to happen now without the British public being involved, for me, I think will actually exacerbate those divides. And I'm very conscious that when I go outside of London, people still think the streets of London are paved with gold. And they still think that Londoners will do better on the whole, whether Brexit happens or not, than they do recognise actually that they've got more in common when it comes to poverty, housing costs, or even just a sense of difficulty about how the world is changing. All of that is the environment in which we operate in. As I say, I think the responsibility for all of us who care now is to try and find a way of having that debate, because I think we would have lots of different ideas about what Brexit might look like or what the real key issues are. But if we can't have that debate at all, then it will be the loudest voices and the largest wallets that will win. And if anybody saw those headlines on Friday and saw how our independent judiciary is being challenged in this country, then actually it's recognising that if we don't act together to be responsible, to not pour oil on that fire, to not say, OK, well, I didn't vote for this, so I don't think it should work, to actually say, no, actually, we've got to find a way of working for everyone, then the only import we'll have in Britain in the years to come will be that Donald Trump culture. And I don't think any of us want that. This is going to be really difficult. I've described it as being like the top of a roller coaster when you have that sinking feeling in your stomach and you know you're about to go down. But actually, I think if we go together, like Tom says, if we work harder, we can find a way of making this work. Indeed, I believe that the community I represent in Walthamstow needs us to do nothing less. So I hope you'll join us with it. Thank you very much. Um, I mean, I think one of the sort of likely outcomes of Brexit will be uh, to exacerbate the huge and yawning uh, regional inequalities in this country and we're completely an outlier if you look at mm. other EU or OECD countries we have by far the greatest regional inequalities. I think it's a strong paradox that actually the two regions or nations that voted to remain, which is Scotland and London, are by far the best equipped to, to, to flourish in a post-Brexit world because actually their economies are generally very global and integrated into global, global markets while lots of the areas, particularly the east of England, are extremely dependent on EU trade uh, and, and, and the EU economy more generally. And I think, so as I say, I, I think it's very likely that one outcome will actually, I think the British economy as a whole will suffer from this, but I think that the London economy <coughs> will suffer less than, than, than other English regions. So you see this 
and, and I understand, and I understand more and more strange. Incredibly strain. tempting for people. I know 170,000 people signed a petition calling for London to be declared an independent state. <laughs> there is a big division between devolution and division. One of the reasons why, let me political, I'm a socialist, I'm not a nationalist, because I believe when you divide people, that's when you fall. So there's a big division. I, re I recognise and I think that Scotland and I think London should have a key voice in the, the Brexit process. But if we think London will thrive on its own if the rest of England fails as a result of Brexit, we're kidding ourselves about the challenges in our country and the benefits that come to us from being part of a united kingdom and being part of working with people. So as much as Scotland wants to say, look, we can go it alone, I think it's really good to hear Sadiq saying, actually, I want to work with other regions, I want to work with the UK Prime Minister, I want to get this right and we need the time to get this right because that is the responsible and frankly progressive thing to do. Could I also make a case for, um, for culture and the arts because... The Arts Quarter, who did uh, a big survey, points out that the UK map of Brexit voters overlaid over areas of low Arts Council investment makes for an interesting view of how investment in culture enables the wider community to embrace a more liberal and tolerant stance. So it's all your fault. It's <laughs> <laughs> but we weren't there, and that was the problem. Is the, is the conclusion. So, so what is the bigger problem for London? Is it, is it affordability or is it Brexit? Um, well, I, I, I just wanted to talk about the, some of the indications for the city um, because I hate to sit on a panel and defend bankers, but um, <laughs> we've all been making strange alliances. They're, they're not going to be going to Frankfurt, as we've heard. They're going to go to New York. Uh, and it, it's, it's going to be very, very serious for us because we're, we're going to lose a lot of tax revenue uh, from that. And a lot of jobs, and not just the jobs of the bankers, all the jobs that support that work as well. And if we, if we lose our passporting rights, for example, to, uh, to access the single market, you know, it, it, it could have very, very serious implications for, for London's future. I think this is, this is the dilemma about the extent to which um, Parliament tries to uh, write a negotiating stance for the people who are negotiating Brexit. I mean, it's obviously idiotic to tell people who are going to give you a really hard time in the negotiation um, exactly what it is that you are bound by by your own side. I think it's a very serious problem. Now, the, the key negotiator for the EU is a Europhile, former Prime Minister of Belgium, still an Euro MP and leader of a mi minority party in Brussels called Guy Verhofstadt. And I heard him speak at a conference in Amsterdam earlier this year. And this is what he said in terms, as the lawyers say. Number one, the EU isn't working. Number two, it is in fact completely dysfunctional. Number three, it cannot be made functional as long as it has 28 or now perhaps 27 member countries. And therefore it needs to become the United States of Europe run by about a dozen countries or the representatives. And finally, because it's a big world, it needs to be an empire. His word, not mine. I thought, plucky little Belgium. Um, empire's not a word I would use if I was a Belgian, but there you go. Some people remember that King Leopold and the Congo. Now, the point is, you're dealing with a real set of toughies in these negotiations, and I'm sorry to say that the kind of um, squawking about trying to define in advance what our negotiators are going to be negotiating is exceptionally foolish. One very obvious thing is, if they're going to negotiate passporting, 
um, for people who work in the City of London. Yet more privilege for the City of London. Thank you very much. That will bring about votes in Lincolnshire. Um, then you don't announce it in advance. It becomes part of a general negotiation about how you protect your existing interests. And I think we've just got to be grown up about this. And actually, I think Stella Creese has made a very good point. We've got to work with things as they are and not with how we might have wanted them to be or how we might imagine they ought to be, which we'll write down and give David Davis and say, go negotiate that old chap. And all that means is that the other side know in advance exactly where the limits lie. I'm quite confident that since this country hasn't expelled anyone, anyone, we've interned some in World War II, we haven't expelled any group since the 13th century. And I don't see that starting again now. And quite frankly, I think the, the, the way that the BBC was reporting this thing that EU nationals, you know, running around fearing that they're all going to be expelled, including young people in our own uh, media-based uh, office. Does this mean I'm going to get sent home? No, it doesn't. It wasn't part of the referendum proposition from any party. It's been explicit, explicitly denied. But the idea that you're going to start going to detail about all that stuff prior to negotiation just seems to me not the way you conduct a, a sensible and grown-up and mature uh, negotiations. You know, it's going yeah. it's, it's, it's to be tough. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm sorry, sure. our, our no, government is not the Monty Python Spanish <laughs> Inquisition, right? There is a big difference between the detail of a negotiation and setting out some clear red lines, some clear principles. And when you talk about those people, they are our neighbours. I mean, one of the reasons why it is absolutely the right thing to do to set out crystal clear, which the government has not, that we will not be deporting EU nationals, is because it is absolutely tearing apart our capital city. It is absolutely leaving people like that granny in floods of tears, because the government has said they're going to use those people as bargaining chips. Now, you talk about people being grown up. I think the British public can take difficult choices, right? I don't believe in mob rule. I believe in the wisdom of the crowd. Nobody is saying that we have to go back. The referendum happened. We all accept the result of the referendum. But there is a big difference between saying to the British public, right, we want you to have your say on this, but now we're not going to tell you anything until it happens. Because there are many different choices. There are choices around passporting. There are choices around access to the single market. There are choices around freedom of movement. And actually, this is not some late-night game of poker. This is people's lives there will, be, there will be people in other European countries, because what people forget is it takes the other 28 European countries agreeing the deal for us to be able to have the deal, who will talk about what is being talked about. So a grown-up conversation is about saying to the British public, you voted for this, here are the general principles, the kind of things that we've got to make choices behind, then we send our negotiating team in. That's the kind of democracy we need to get to. And anyone who suggests that we can throw people's lives around like bargaining chips isn't respecting democracy, isn't respecting the British public, and is doing a disservice to the damage that has been done that we all need to repair. Well, of course, the government has to protect the interests of uh, British citizens who live in the EU. And it's one thing saying what principles are. It's another thing to start going to details. And the dividing line between a principle and a detail, which I'm sure you know is a very narrow one, because you debate those things in Parliament the whole time. And speaking as a long-term trade union negotiator in my youth... I can tell you that going in to speak to a management where it's been predetermined in advance what you're going to negotiate results in a dud. And by the way, not everyone accepts on the Remain side that, the that we all accept that that's the result and that's the result. I'll give you Baroness Wheatcroft for a start. 
I mean, there are a lot of people in Parliament who are determined to thwart the result of that referendum by every means at their disposal. Let's at least be realistic about that. Just quickly on the the point about EU nationals. You say, oh, well, it's obvious it's not going to be sent back. A lot of, there were a lot of people who voted in the referendum to leave who thought that's exactly what, that's yes. exactly what it meant, <laughs> that EU nationals would be sent back. Yeah. And we have to address... It, it's about the atmosphere uh, that's being created. And we have to address that, that, that atmosphere. So, so, so the, uh, the issue of, sort of uh, community relations and um, integration, what could the mayor in particular, but what could London be doing to address the sort of tensions that have been uh, provoked by by the vote. Um, where are the big opportunities around integration? We've got a new deputy mayor for integration in London. I think, actually, we are a pretty well-integrated city, but, 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 but where are the real opportunities? I mean, should I start, start with you as it's so much your patch? Well, well, I, think this is, I said earlier, this is about not pouring oil on the fire and not seeing people's lives as a difference between a principle and a negotiation. This is people making decisions about their family lives, about their jobs. I have people leaving my community now because they feel unwelcome and they feel uncertain. And those two things are different and equally important. So one of the things that we can do as Londoners is to reach out to each other and say, actually, you are welcome here. We do recognise the contribution you make. We do recognise that our city is better because of its diversity. That brings strength. It brings jobs. So we need to find ways to make that work. At a very practical level, locally, we ran a a workshop. We had 250 people turn up the week after the vote, and we've been planning three areas of activity ever since. One is around personal debt, because when inflation goes up next year, people who are already struggling, we forget that this is a capital city also with a lot of people who are zombie debtors. So they're paying off the interest, not the capital, on their loans. Well, as soon as as inflation goes up, any interest that they might have saved that might go into house prices is going to be eaten up like that with the high cost of living. So looking at how we can get people debt advice. Secondly, we're helping support our local businesses, all those people who do trade internationally. We're doing a local business map in the run-up to Christmas. I might come to the mayor and ask to help us back it, um, to encourage people to spend their money locally because money spent locally is sticky money. It has a double return. And thirdly, we're running community cohesion events to bring people together to talk about these issues because it doesn't make you racist to ask questions about other communities. It's about doing your homework and about being open to doing it. All of us have a responsibility not to pour oil on that fire, to not make this about, I don't believe these people accept the result, I don't believe these people are voting in the of Britain... The result has happened. We are all trying to deal with the consequence of it, but let's deal with it with compassion. Let's deal with it with practicality, and let's deal with it together as a community. Ivana, where are the opportunities for, for integration? In well, do you think they're I think education is absolutely key, um, and it's clear that there is a that people really don't grasp economics. I'm afraid to say, and why should they? Because it's not it's not in the curriculum. It's not something that's widely discussed, but. That's what we see is when we see an entire factory in Wales whose 80% of their exports were to the EU voting against it. And you think, why, <laughs> you know, what, what went wrong there in their grasp of how economics works, our histories, our cultures, those kinds of things. I also think maybe, as you were saying, a, a greater sense of neighbourhood so that it's not about... Um, uh, allying yourself perhaps with supranational or even citywide, but streetwide um, communities. And then obviously people feel they don't have a sense of agency. You know, they feel they don't have opportunities. 
They're frustrated. It was a protest vote. We know that. And it's also focusing against the fear of immigration, of foreigners. Those two things are very dangerous and volatile states of being for communities. So why, why did that happen? Why? Because in a place like Felixstowe, the ferry closed down, there's huge unemployment. You know, why? Because of the mining villages in the north in the Midlands and the Northeast, three generations of unemployment. We're in a post-industrial landscape. We've got to retool, reskill, give people a sense that they have some agency, some control over their destiny, and that they, they're not merely dependent on you know, big uh, industries or, or government initiatives. I think there's got to be more um, relationship, and I would call on you to look at Assemble in Toxteth in Liverpool, who are an architectural group who've worked with the community of Granby to um, revive whole streets in that neighbourhood and teach people how to make porcelain doorknobs in their barbecues and so on and so forth. I mean, it's a tiny micro-grassroots thing, but it's actually changed the neighbourhood there. And I think culture has got a very key role to play in that. Mm. Before I come to Tom, Cal, any, any, any thoughts on that you've heard, particularly on this challenge of integration? Well, in you know, I do, I do think it's about outreach in some ways. It's um, having lived here for quite a number of years, and I would always say to friends back home, there's no polarization. It just kind of doesn't really matter what you believe on, on all these social issues. And after the vote, you realize how polarized this country is. And I think the only way to kind of try and heal wounds is rather than saying you said, you said, this is the way. Um, it's all gotten lost in, in, in the fight. And, and um, in some ways, actually, just talking here to, today, you think about it, it was such a momentous occasion when Sadiq Khan was elected. And that's com- outside of here, totally lost, forgotten. The noise is completely covered it. So there's an opportunity to actually, if we're talking about London and not the UK, because it'll some people probably in, in the greater countries that, that London's still a place and London's still an exciting place and London doesn't intend to change and there's there's actually a very a new moment to make it into something different and 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 that kind of policy can come across so, so I think it's just trying to try and yeah there's just a way to reach across the aisle as you say. <laughs> Tom, nicely from you. Particularly on the question of integration, where do you see the your, your, the mayor who you supported? Yep, he's he's gone so big on this. Where do you see the the challenges and the opportunities. Well, Matthew Ryder, the new Deputy Mayor for Social Integration, we questioned him at uh, one of our committees the other day. Very, very impressive. He wants to, it, it said it's not just about racial integration, it's, it's across the board, across the piece, about bringing people together. And uh, I think that's fantastic. And I, I'm, I want to talk about culture, um, because what, what makes London such a great and attractive place to come to is our amazing cultural offer. One of the reasons why businesses would locate here rather than get a Frankfurt is, frankly, Frankfurt is boring. Uh, It's dull. Um, And we have to make sure that we continue to invest. It's why it's very important that one of Sadiq's top three um, uh, policy areas that he's focusing on is culture in London. And uh, we we are in danger of of becoming a very dull and and boring city if, if, if we reach a tipping point where it becomes too expensive to live here. I mean, we're losing artists to Berlin already, even before the Brexit vote. So we have to look at things like affordable artists' uh, workspace, things like that. And why not make actors key workers? I mean, you know, the theatre is such an important part of London's economy. Uh, uh, It's absolutely crucial. There are all sorts of things. And and just finally, one of the reasons why Sadiq won and why his campaign was so powerful 
was because he had this wonderful narrative. He was like Mr. London. You know, he had that wonderful art growing up in the council flat. You know, uh, uh, it, it was, he talks about how London had helped him to become who he was, and he wants that for the next generation. And I, and I think that's a very powerful way of being able to knit people and different communities together. Please, everyone, join me once more in thanking the whole panel for coming and giving us so generously. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.